You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and I am grateful for you listening to the 24th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. The goal, always be worth your time. Uh, This week we'll do that with some fresh thoughts on the Chiefs as they prepare to play in smoky California in a brand new and gorgeous stadium against the Chargers on Sunday. Uh, Some questions about modern media, Chiefs season ticket prices, and the Mount Rushmore of Kansas City athletes. Then we're going to play some clips from a conversation I had with Royals general manager Dayton Moore this week on the state of his team as the 2020 season hits the home stretch and we look forward to uh, a hopefully full (laughs) 2021 season. Uh, Big thanks to everyone listening here for the first time. Uh, Dropping the paywall has opened us up to new people. If you've been with us from the beginning, I hope you're enjoying the better delivery and experience. This is the part where I welcome you to check out some past episodes, right? Um, everything from, you know, Bill Self on his time in quarantine, the Kansas Cityans with NBA connections trying to land a team here, and Patrick Mahomes' primary male influences on the particulars of how his personality developed. Uh, this is all stuff you can't get in other places. I hope we're worth your time, and I hope that it inspires you to subscribe to our work. Uh, you can get everything we do in sports for $30 for a year. Best deal in town. Reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook or email, and I'll send you the link. Okay, here at the top, uh, we're going to talk some Chiefs. Uh, There will be, I suspect, plenty of opportunities to drool over an offense that's somehow better than it was last year, better even than in in Mahomes' MVP season. So I want to talk about the defense right now. Uh, I know what Tyron Matthews said after the game last week, and and Steve Spagnuolo emphasized it again um, on Thursday. They are, quote, pissed off, end quote, about giving up those two late touchdowns. But, you know, from my perspective, you know, slow down, right? Like they, they held a team with Deshaun Watson to seven points into the fourth quarter. Um, they gave up two scores late after the outcome was decided and after the Chiefs were without their two corners. Um, I'm calling that a win. I get where those guys are coming from. They should be pissed off, all that stuff. But from where I'm sitting, I think that's a win. Um, you know, the biggest thing that they did, and this is a little bit different than last year, but they, they really got after the quarterback. You know, the, the Chiefs pressured Watson 23 times, according to Pro Football Focus. That is, <laughs> let me, I, I Double check this number, <laughs> this is ridiculous, I can't say it without laughing, but that is 72% of Deshaun Watson's dropbacks. He got pressured basically three out of every four times he dropped back to pass. That is just silly. You know, look, like we're all adults here. We understand that that won't happen every week. And also that the Texans need to be better up front on their own, right? But uh, it's worth pointing out that in both, you know, Brett Veach's roster construction and Steve Spagnuolo's approach, the Chiefs will and should put a greater emphasis on pressuring the quarterback than most teams. I say they will because, you know, Veach's collection of pass rushers matches Spags' desire to get at passers in different ways, you know, from different angles and from different guys. Uh, You know, Frank Clark and Chris Jones, those are two of the best to do it. Uh, But I'm not sure NFL teams can rely on just one or two guys to get at the quarterback anymore. You know, Jones, Clark, and Tano Passanio, who is continuing to, to progress, you know, those three guys accounted for 16 of the 23 pressures. And, you know, there's a good chance that those three will lead the team in pressures once the regular season is done. 
But the Chiefs got those pressures from, they got them from nine guys. Um, and <laughs> if you're a child of the 80s, maybe you're like me and thinking about, you know, Principal Rooney and Ferris Bueller's Day Off right now, you know, nine times, nine. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Chiefs got pressures from Jones, Clark, Passigno, Alex Okafor, Tershawn Wharton, Michael Dana, Derek Noddy, Tyron Matthew, and Dorian O'Daniel. That is a hell of a thing. You know, a year ago, and I know I've mentioned this before, but the Chiefs pass rush, they, they lacked consistency. Um, you know, importantly, they were clutch as a mother, you know, getting sacks or hits or hurries when they needed them the most. We saw that, you know, most clearly in the Super Bowl, really. But they would go stretches of games without bothering the quarterback that much. And, you know, now opposing offenses are always free to, you know, get the ball out quickly, which of course opens the defense to other ways of attacking. But, you know, for a list of reasons, the Chiefs didn't always get to the quarterback consistently. This is, you know, just one game. Uh, we're not making any big declarations here, but, you know, the, the Chargers protected Tyrod Taylor pretty well in week one. Look, that was against the Bengals, right? But still, uh, so it's it's worth watching them against another opponent. But, you know, remembering that what we saw on Thursday was, you know, basically what the Chiefs envisioned last offseason when they paired a bunch of pass rushers with, with Spags' scheme. Um, you know, lots of injuries. They, that group needed time to get to know each other, right? To get used to each other. And by the time that happened, they had a bunch of injuries that changed what they looked like on the field last year. But the same thing may happen again, right? You, you, you can't predict injuries. But if the Chiefs can get after the quarterback like this, like we saw last week against the Texans, um, you know, especially with an offense that's going to put opponents in a lot of passing situations, you know, we may see more games like last Thursday. Okay, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, um, you know, this <laughs> the podcast is now free, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you to join us behind the paywall. Uh, we work hard to bring you information and perspectives that you can't get in other places. And again, I hope we're worth that time, and I hope it inspires you to subscribe to our work. You can get everything we do in sports for $30 a year, best deal in town. Um, again, reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook or email, and I'll send you the link. Okay, a quick break here, and then we'll be back with some questions. If you'd like to participate in next week's show, uh, which we'll post before the Chiefs' next game, and that'll be against the Ravens, the big one against the Ravens, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365. Okay, quick break, and then we will be back with those questions. Hi, this is Rob Nassari from Nashville, Tennessee. I enjoy your work. I've always enjoyed the A-Team. I have a quick question. Long-time uh, Chiefs season ticket holder. Fly in for the games and enjoy every minute that I'm there. And this year I was very disappointed when the Chiefs markup went to 400% uh, more than what my regular tickets stand for. And I, I do understand the economics. I'm a small business owner. The key question is, if they increase capacity, if they go to 50%, let's say, um, later in the season, is it possible that they will drop their season ticket prices, single-game ticket prices? Um, Mark Gaumann did not allude to that when he was given his presser, but it does uh, – the math works, I suppose, at that point, and my hope would be that uh, uh, you'll have uh, more people involved, obviously, in the game. Uh, Thank you so much, and I appreciate the time. 
The Chiefs would tell you that ticket prices weren't actually bumped, but that the difference came from the fact that they weren't selling season tickets this year. So there aren't any season ticket prices. Like, so basically everybody's paying the single game rate. Um, some of this is semantics because, you know, come on, of, of course the prices are bumped. Um, the Chiefs have two straight road games before the Patriots play here on October 4th, but I haven't heard anything to indicate the broad strokes plan will change. You know, from what I see, at least as of Thursday afternoon, uh, the get-in price for that Patriots game was $260. Um, and there were some other tickets going for as much as $760. It's a ton of money, obviously. And I am of a few minds on this. You know, I, I certainly understand supply and demand. Um, the Chiefs, they are, that is a business first and a football team second, right? And I'll never argue for a system that puts the extra profits in the hands of, you know, third-party brokers and not the team that produces the entertainment. Also, I understand the team leading the way here with a handful of others and welcoming fans to the stadium. I'm not naive. I understand the financial motive, but I also believe that, you know, the Chiefs are putting in some effort and taking some risks here to do something their fans have been asking for. So, um, you know, good for everyone here, you know, obviously assuming protocols and all that. But, you know, there's always a but, right? But uh, it breaks my heart to read so many messages from so many longtime season ticket holders who are being priced out of the first Super Bowl encore season in 50 years. That sucks. That There's no other way to put it. Um, it sucks. And it's something that could, the Chiefs, they could have made it, you know, not suck, right? Um, so I, I feel you, man. Uh, the prices are outrageous, but it's, it's a complicated deal. And I hope we never have to deal with this ever, 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 ever again. Okay, here's an interesting question about media and newspapers. Hey, Sam. This is Chris on 1X. I got a question for your podcast, which, by the way, I've been enjoying the podcast. And my question is kind of related to the podcast and different media adventures going on in the world today or in the country, sports-wise. Um, you, you know, things are obviously getting different in media you know, just almost daily. There's some some new website popping up or another podcast here and there. I did. I, let me let me ask the question this way: Do you think, even though the star subscriptions are down, do you think more people read your column today in 2020 when the Chiefs are Super Bowl champions than they than they did when the Star was a strong subscription based paper in 1970? when Joe McGuff was writing about the 1970 defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs. Fifty years later, are more people reading you with different ways of getting you, or did more, more people read Joe back there? I'm sure you got those numbers. What do you t Tell me what the deal is. Have a good weekend. You got me curious, so I looked it up. And in 1965, the Star and the Times each had circulations above 300,000. Uh, right now, depending on the day, the star is around 100,000. So, you know, obviously that's a big drop. Um, those circulation numbers, uh, you know, 1965, obviously, and, and, and even the ones today, they don't include anything online, right? Like not page views, not digital subscriptions, not the app, not readership on the e-edition, nothing. Uh, we're still a newspaper. That's what we call ourselves. And I know people tend to think of us as the print edition. But, um, you know, to me, I've thought of myself as the sports columnist for KansasCity.com more than the print edition for quite some time. Um, I don't know how much of that gap in print readership and circulation is made up online, honestly. You know, this is <laughs> maybe something I shouldn't say out loud, uh, but we're all friends here and I'm 
been honest with you, I, I don't look at those page view numbers as much as I probably should. Uh, I used to, um, you know, all writers want to be read and, you know, we all want to know how many people we're reaching. But the reason we have those numbers, or at least the reason the star provides us those numbers is to make us better at our jobs. And, you know, at some point I was just, I guess, honest with myself enough to realize that looking at those numbers was not helping me do my job. Uh, maybe I wasn't strong enough, whatever, but, you know, I just found those numbers getting in my head, you know, like I, I wasn't writing for clicks necessarily. That's not what I'm saying, but I wasn't writing in the way that like I think is best for me either. Um, anyway, long and rambling way of saying that, you know, I can't know exactly how my readership compares to Joe McGuff's or anyone else from 50 years ago. Um, it's lower. You'd have to assume even if we can only guess how many people read a particular story in print then or now, um, you know, even if we have the, you know, the circulation numbers. But, you know, look, if, if you were going to do a romantic movie about sports writing, um, you'd certainly pick a different time than right now. Right. Like, you know, newspapers in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, those were basically like ATM machines, um, you know, something that profit margins, 25%, 30%, even more. It was ridiculous. But I also find ways that it's better now than it's ever been. You know, I have more communication with my readers than any sports writer did 50 years ago, for instance. I have access to more information, you know, more numbers, more video. It's easier for me to reach sources. You know, nothing's ever the same as it used to be. Um, and there's no realistic way for a sports columnist to have the influence now the same as it was in, in Joe McGuff's day, right? Like, like I helped land the Royals. Um, you know, there's not a sports writer that's going to do that in 2020. But, you know, I mean this sincerely. Uh, you know, I got into this thing as a bit of a dreamer, you know, like a romantic or whatever. And, you know, the nuts and bolts of doing my job, like, and I'm talking like the watching games, talking to people involved, you know, developing relationships with sources and readers, the writing, the, you know, the fundamentals. Um, it's probably more enjoyable than I realistically expected, you know, because I, I heard some horror stories, you guys. But, you know, look, the good far outweighs the bad, at least for me. So um, anyway, OK, here's a sort of historic question. Hey, Sam, Steve in Raleigh. Question for the podcast. If this is and it probably is Gordo's last season with the Royals, where does he stand in the Mountain Rushmore conversation of Kansas City athletes. Um, love to hear your uh, perspective on that. Thank you. Uh, first, I don't know that this will be Gordon's seat last season. Um, he hasn't said that, and, you know, neither he or the Royals want him to be in the way of a prospect, but, you know, he obviously loves to play, and the Royals obviously respect who he is and what he is. The Rushmore thing, you know, look, if we take that literally and we have four spots, uh, to me it's George Brett, Lynn Dawson, Tom Watson, and, you know, look, you, you you might think this is premature, but I don't, uh, Patrick Mahomes. That last spot has always been sort of up for grabs, you know, like a year or two ago, uh, you know, you could have made a good case for Frank White, Derek Thomas, Buck O'Neill, maybe a few others. Uh, but at this point, I, I just don't know how anybody has a better case for that spot than Mahomes, you know, um, unless you have some personal requirement for a guy to be like retired or whatever. You know, I, I do think that Gordon is probably in that next tier down. Uh, I know I've made this point before, but I don't think there's anyone who personifies that Royals push up from, you know, joke to champion better than Gordon. He had all the hype as, you know, college player of the year at Nebraska, then more hype as the minor league player of the year's first full season as a pro. Um, you know, he was then like promptly written off as a bust by many, you know, injured, told to change positions to make way for the next guy who was Mike Moustakas. And, uh, you know, this is kind of a side note, but I've always appreciated the sort of irony that, you know, Gordon got pushed off third to make room for, you know, the hotshot prospect. But, 
you know, Gordon was the hotshot prospect and he forced Mark Tien off third base uh, when he got to the big leagues. But, you know, anyway, the, the point is that, you know, before he ever played a major league game, not only was Alex Gordon compared to George Brett, but George Brett himself said he was honored by the comparison. I still laugh at that. Um, you know, how's that for expectations, kid? But, you know, Gordon did remake himself. He did come back up from the bottom and he was a critical bridge from what existed before to what ended up being, you know, created out of that Hosmer, Moose, Perez, Kane push. Um, you know, Gordon was an irreplaceable part of a world champion, that homer off Familia that will live forever. Um, so yeah, I mean, he has a special, special part of the city's sports history. I don't, I don't know how many more all-star, you know, team Hall of Fame type players the Royals will ever have who play their whole careers here. Um, Sal Perez has a point, a, a chance, I guess, but I'm not convinced that he's going to play his whole career in Kansas City. And, you know, those kinds of things matter too. But okay, uh, another good week of questions. Uh, thank you guys for calling in and thank you as well to the people who called in and we couldn't get to. Uh, really digging the number and quality of questions coming in, especially after we came out from behind the paywall. Here, here's that number again. One more time for you guys to call 816 234 4365, um, 816-234-4365. Call anytime. Uh, leave your first name, where you're calling from, almost literally any question. 816-234-4365. Cool. Um, okay, one more quick break, and then we're back with a conversation with Royals General Manager Dayton Moore. I know for a lot of you, baseball season ends when the Chiefs start playing, right? And, uh, you know, that's probably particularly true when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl and the Royals aren't in playoff contention. But, you know, we have a lot of Chiefs on the show this week. And I'm assuming next week's show is going to be 100% dedicated to that Chiefs-Ravens game. Uh, and there was some interesting parts of this conversation with Dayton that I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, the Royals are in a really important spot right now, you guys, even if that's easy to miss. They're very unlikely to make any more, you know, major signings this offseason. This is probably the last winter that they, you know, should err on the side of what they already have in-house, you know, to kind of figure out what they need moving forward. But, you know, we're getting to the point that these things need to start taking traction. You know, the nucleus of what the Royals hope is the next winner is already significantly in the big leagues. Um, you know, Brady Singer looks real. And that is so important. Chris Bubich, you know, man, how can you not like watching this guy pitch, you know? The Royals see Mondesi in that group, Nicky Lopez, Hunter Dozier, you know, maybe Zuber. Whit Merrifield is going to factor in one way or the other. And, you know, there's more coming. Asa Lacey, Bobby Witt Jr., those are the headliners. But, you know, Kyle Isabel, Daniel Lynch, Jackson Coar, uh, maybe a few others that are in that group. Um, you know, I asked Dayton about that. Here's a short clip. You've got some pieces, okay? You've got some guys that can make all-star teams. You've got several guys that can make all-star teams. Didn't say they were going to be ready in their rookie year, although, you know, we – We've got to start. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, that, um, needs to start happening here as we go forward. And part of it's timing. And we've always been, we haven't been over aggressive with moving guys to the major leagues. Um, but we haven't been real conservative. I wouldn't call us aggressive, but we haven't been really conservative either. That means they've got some decisions to make. And, you know, Dayton talked more about that here, including the handling of Singer and Bubich. You know, like, Bringing Singer up and having him pitch the second game of the season, that, that, you know, that meant they adhered to the plan that they had before the season was shortened, you know, getting them the same amount of work. But it also meant losing a year of club control um, on the back end. But 
Anyway, here's Dayton. I think the sense of timing, Sam, of when uh, these guys come to the major leagues should be discussed. Um, it's valid uh, praise or valid criticism. I mean, so you can say it made all the sense in the world to put Brady and Bubich in the major leagues this year, given the circumstances, given the situation. You can also say, okay, we started the clock. Did it really make sense? Uh, I believe it was the right thing to do based on where they were, based on, you and I talked about this before, when we went into spring training, we felt Brady Singer and Chris Bubich would be on this team mid-June, early July. Uh, they come to spring training. They did nothing to uh, change our opinion. They come to summer camp. They did nothing to change our opinion. And so we we did what we felt we needed to do. We didn't really go off script. We just stuck with the plan. We stayed disciplined to the plan. And you can say, well, there was no minor leagues or yeah, I understand that. But, you know, data, when you measure the data, when you look at it with your eyes, and the data clearly says that they're they're uh, above major league average in, in these areas, uh, command, velocity, uh, rotation or their breaking ball, I mean, all the different determiners and factors we look at, there is nothing to change our mind. But you can also say, when is the right time when Lacey's ready now going forward? When is the right time for Bobby Witt? going forward when is the right time for a Kyle Isabel or a or um Khalil Lee or you know some of these other guys that truthfully that really not are on the radar uh in, in some of the publications but that are on our radar and mm-hmm. um and so that that's that's probably the challenge there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, and you know these are critical decisions. Um, I appreciate Dayton being open and willing to share his ideas on this stuff. I think it makes following the Royals more interesting. And okay, so there's one more clip I want to share here. Um, this is about you know sort of the elephant in the room, you know, which is that the Royals they can do all the right things here. You know, they can build the team good enough for the postseason and then have it not matter because, you know, the the White Sox are, honest to God, one of the most talented teams. And I'm stressing that word talent because, you know, we'll see if the results come over a long period of time, but they are one of the most talented teams in recent baseball history. The Twins are great. Um, the Indians seem to have gee, this never-ending supply of pitching. The Tigers have some high-ceiling guys, you know. The environment that this group of Royals are coming into is just so much different than it was for the group that started to debut around 2011. Okay, here's Dayton on that. Yeah. Completely different. Completely different. I look at it as I look at it as a very as an extreme positive because it's going to make us all better. Um, the competition, embracing the competition, uh, will it will. Uh, It'll improve us in all areas. I mean, it's going to it's going to make us all better. It's going to make our players better. It's going to make our manager better. Hopefully, it makes the general manager better. Um, it's going to because it you, you've got a you've got a big challenge. You can't um, you just can't sit back and know it's going to be okay. 
So again, really interesting stuff from the guy trying to put together the Royals' next winner. It's a heck of a challenge um, with jobs that include his own are on the line, and it's made even more difficult by factors out of his control. So, okay, that's the show this week. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope we're worth your time. And if I can impose, I hope we're worth subscribing to. Uh, rating and reviewing the podcast, it really helps us get the word out. Thanks as always to Randy Mason and Savannah Smith for putting this together. Uh, thanks to everyone who called in. Thanks to Dayton for the time and perspective. And the biggest thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, let's do it again next week. Have a good weekend. Be kind. <laughs>